coming up on Chopper's Politics. If he gets a fixed penalty notice for partying during lockdowns, should he resign? Well, what's that all about? Partygate. What's that? Look, we've got to be serious. We've got to think about a global crisis. And we cannot be distracted by things that may or may not have happened a couple of years ago for a few minutes. I'm Christopher Hope, The Telegraph's associate editor, and this is Chopper's Politics. This week, we saw a momentous occasion in the House of Commons as Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky addressed MPs in the chamber. I'm, I'm very grateful to you, Boris. And we'll be sticking with the subject of sanctions over the war in Ukraine, as this week we've seen Boris Johnson pledge to stop importing Russian oil and take unprecedented action against Russian oligarchs, including Chelsea FC owner Roman Abramovich. So to discuss how the world has changed in just two weeks, just two weeks, into one of sanctions, energy supply issues and worries about a possible World War III, we're joined by Jacob Rees-Mogg, the Brexit Opportunities Minister. Jacob, welcome back to Chopper's Politics. Well, thank you very much. It's kind of you to have me back. You've been on, what, four or five times now? You, you're one of the early guests on Chopper's Brexit podcast. I was, which was quite a tongue twister. And it you was. used to try and get me to say it several it times. Um, in so Latin yes, ones, I think. I've been a regular visitor, <laughs> so I'm always pleased to be invited back. Goodness, though, life has changed, hasn't it? I mean, you look at the various crises in inverted commas. I mean, some didn't think Brexit was a crisis. The crisis was amongst the leaders who couldn't implement what the people wanted. But then you go into COVID, and now we have war in Europe, which tops them all. It is extraordinary, isn't it, that the pace of political life, really since the Scottish referendum in 2014, has just got faster and faster and faster. I've gone grey in that time. <laughs> <laughs> A young man like you, I'm surprised. I've just gone greyer. Um, <laughs> But yes, war in Ukraine is something that I don't think any of us thought would happen if you go back five years. The idea that Europe would get back to the situation it was in in the 1940s with great powers deciding to invade neighbouring countries is really quite extraordinary. European countries. European countries, absolutely. And you think back to the SDSR, the uh, defensive view from the government, even just last autumn, and it's all about cyber. We want cyber warriors to take on the bots, Russians, and suddenly we're back into talking about tanks. I mean, uh, it just indeed, shows how uh, and the paradigm the, can change so quickly. And the government providing defensive anti-tank weapons mm. to the Ukrainians to help them yeah. face down an invader. Have you heard that the Ukrainians say, God save the Queen, when they fire yeah, off yes, each I, missile? Yes, I, I have. Yes, I, I heard James Heapy <laughs> say that on the radio this morning. <laughs> is, uh, but, uh, have you ever been more worried about the future? Well... Or, um, or are we overdoing the, the, it? There are deep concerns, and the developments between Russia and Ukraine are worse than the normal run of international affairs and obviously desperate for the people caught up in them. And when you are getting a maternity ward shelled by the Russians and, you know, newborn babies being put at risk, this is the most brutal, wicked war that we thought the civilised world had seen the end of. And so... It's it's right to be very concerned about this. But Jackie Rees-Mogg, is it a Christian response, do you think, to watch what happened to that maternity hospital overnight on Thursday and not send in air cover and not order in NATO jets and not even allow Poland to supply MiG jets that Ukrainian Air Force can fly? Well, 
in terms of the Christian response, you are always back to Aquinas and the doctrine of just war, aren't you? And you have to discuss legitimate cause, reasonable authority, and chance of success within a proportionate basis. And so is the Russian action a just war? No, absolutely certain and unequivocally not. It is evil. It is unadulterated evil, and they are carrying it out in the most brutal way. The Ukrainians defending is entirely legitimate and proper and meets all the requirements of the just war doctrine and are allowing them to have defensive weaponry fits in with that. That you're then saying, should the West go to war with Russia, which is a completely different question and change, I think, that in terms of Christian response would be increasing the terror enormously. So no, I think in terms of Christian teaching, in terms of Aquinas, what we are doing at the moment is perfectly proper and actually the right level of response. It's hard to explain, isn't it, to the Ukrainians? I mean, you were there in the chamber when President Zelensky, I was there too, looking down at you from the press gallery. He quoted Churchill, he quoted Shakespeare in really moving ways, didn't he? It was an incredibly powerful speech. And the quoting of Churchill, actually, I thought was even stronger than the quoting of Shakespeare and that sheer determination and leadership that he is giving to his but We're his standing people. behind Ukraine, not alongside them, and that's what troubles a lot of people in this country. Ukraine's not a NATO member, and the Article 5 guarantee to NATO is absolute and must always be kept. It is not sensible to give guarantees that you cannot keep. Now, it is absolutely crucial that Putin does not succeed. Putin must fail. Mm. And the sanctions are attacking the sources of his wealth and the sources of the wealth of his friends and associates. They are having an effect on the economy. And the Ukrainians are fighting back extremely effectively. But NATO has always been a defensive alliance. And what you're suggesting is that NATO become an aggressive alliance. And I think that would be a mistake and would actually help Putin uh, rather than help seek his end. So I think, however terrible things are, it is really important that they are thought through rationally and that the inevitable emotion of these terrible scenes does not override the rational consideration of what the wisest approach is. The UK's response has been a massive generosity from the taxpayer through aid money and people digging into their tax income in the middle of a cost of living crisis to help people in Ukraine. It has touched the entire country, the suffering, and we look on wondering how we can help. Is the way the Home Office are approaching the war refugees right? I think the whole country wants us to be generous to people coming from Ukraine. I was really struck that on Tuesday, the letters page of The Sun was encouraging people to be generous to migrants coming, refugees coming from Ukraine. Now, if you think of that, the Sun historically has been, or the Sun's readers have been those who have been most affected by immigration and the most likely to find their wages kept down and by cheap labour from abroad. So the generosity of that appeal is very, very strong. And the government has got routes that will allow up to 200,000 to come through the family route and an uncapped route through sponsorship. But obviously it is important that our desire to be generous is not held up by form-filling. Which it seems to be, doesn't it? A few hundred have got through and over 20,000 have applied. But but this is early days. I think that in terms of refugees, the first thing is that they get out of the war zone. 
And then once they're out of the war zone, there is a certain amount of time to sort out when they get to further away places. We're a long way from Ukraine, geographically. That's right. So what we need to be doing at the moment is helping the Polish authorities with money and other supports, particularly Poland, because it's had the largest number, but not exclusively Poland, so they can cope with the immediate numbers who are going there. And the British people, as you say, have been stunningly generous, and stories of people loading up their cars and driving to Poland with um, supplies. Now, I know the government doesn't encourage this and would prefer that money were given. On the other hand, it's very hard not to admire people who feel so strongly that they want to do something. Well, there are Brits who are fighting, going to fight in Ukraine. Do you support Liz Truss saying it's a good idea? Well, I think this is technically an illegal under an 1870 Act of Parliament where subjects of Her Majesty are not allowed to join the forces of foreign countries. So there's a penalty to that? Uh, well, I haven't read the law in detail, no. but I would not encourage people to break the law. But I think we want to support Ukraine, and that's why yeah. the government is providing these anti-tank missiles and indeed some anti-aircraft um, missiles as well. And I think that's important, that people should be aware that there are risks involved and the law, though an old law, is there for good purpose. Are we seeing Russia being almost flushed out of this country at the moment? with the oligarchs being sanctioned on Thursday morning, as frivolous as changing the name of Chicken Kiev to Chicken Kiev. I mean... Well, we've got to be very careful about this, because we have no gripe with the Russian people, or with Russian culture, or with British citizens of Russian origin. It's very, very important that they should not feel in any way prejudiced against, because some of them are themselves refugees from the Putin regime and we should support them and help them but those who are close to the Putin regime and it's quite hard to be an oligarch if you're not close to the Putin regime and have maintained your Russian assets and your ability to go to and from Russia if you're not sympathetic it's not just apolitical it's you actually have to be sympathetic to the regime deservedly being sanctioned in terms of what listeners can do, should they be not sure well, they all eat caviar, but not drinking vodka and the rest of it, or should they? That that hurts Russia, maybe. I thought a lot of our vodka was made in Warrington, but I may <laughs> be wrong about that. I don't think that would be particularly wise. I think it would be the wrong sacrifice to make. I mean, you're thinking about the First World War when people poured hock down exactly. the drain because they weren't going to drink German in, in wine. Disgust. I think your readers are wise enough to know we have no gripe with the Russian people. We have a gripe with an evil mm. totalitarian dictator who must fail. Mm. But the Russian people, with all their extraordinary history, are people with whom we wish to maintain a friendship and restore a friendship in an era to come when Putin is no longer their ruler. And the way this fighting stops is Putin has to go. And the way that happens is somehow rising up within Russia amongst generals or people. Look, I don't know. But ultimately, the government of Russia is a matter for the Russian people. And I'm not sure that British politicians saying who should govern Russia is a very clever way of doing but things. But it is Putin's war. It is Putin's war. So it he's is, the problem. It is Putin's war, yes. Do you want to see Putin taken out? Oh, I think it's not sensible to call for assassinations of foreign leaders. You legitimise a type of terror that can be counterproductive. And you may make things worse. I mean, I know the old line about Russia being, what is it, an autocracy mediated by assassination, but I don't think it's for British politicians to call for the assassination of foreign leaders. The UK response, what has changed in the past two weeks? 
it seems that suddenly energy security was a worry already and now it's gone stratospheric along with the soaring household bills into the later this year as much as £4,000 a household up from £1,500 at the moment. What needs to change? We're expecting a Boris Johnson statement on energy within 10 days. What do you want to see the new priorities be? Well, we have a lot of energy in the UK and historically we haven't had gas storage because our gas storage was the North Sea. Mm. It wasn't because we were silly and we weren't thinking about it. It's that we had this great pool of gas. We didn't need to build gas storage when you've got got it and you could tap it out and other countries weren't in that situation. But part of the green argument was that we shouldn't tap our own resources of natural gas and oil, which always seemed to me to be eccentric at best because the idea that importing LNG is greener than sucking it out of the North Sea has always been nonsensical. You don't get to net zero any faster or any slower if you use your gas or somebody else's gas. It's still gas. And actually, it's marginally more environmentally friendly if you use your own gas because it hasn't had the extra transportation costs. And what really matters is that people should be able to heat their homes at an affordable level and that this is going to be heavily dependent on gas for years to come, that 2050 is still quite a long time away. It doesn't change the long-term ambition, that's fine. But in the meantime, let's do it for ourselves. Let's make sure we have energy security. And whilst we're thinking about it, food security is going to be pretty important too. We'll come on to that. In terms of energy energy security, a big debate is fracking. It's been reported that you're pro-fracking, is that right? Well, pro-safe fracking, maybe. I'm fully in line with the 2019 manifesto, which said that we were in favour of fracking as long as it was safe. And then the definition is what is safe. And you look at seismic activity, and we've set limits on seismic activity that are so low that they can only be measured with specialist measuring equipment. The worst you normally get from fracking is less than you get from a rockfall in a disused coal mine. And there's a brilliant report on this from 2012, so it's 10 years old, but the facts won't have changed, from the Royal Society with the Royal Geographic Society, which goes through the seismic arguments. And it does worry me that people hear about something on the Richter scale and they immediately think it's the San Francisco earthquake. Mm. So we need a good understanding of what the real risks are before we can decide whether or not it is, is safe. And we need to get a better understanding of how much we can realistically... Extract. I mean, there is so much there. Well, it is there. I mean, in that, the Poland Basin, well, if you talk to the industry, as uh, I've been I mean, doing... pe- people do seem to say that, but until you've started extracting... Perhaps I watched Dallas too much when I was a child, and <laughs> Digger Barnes Digger used to Barnes, have a nose yes. for where there was oil. Yes. Uh, and then, of course, the Ewings took it from him. Yes. Uh, and, and so I remember from Dallas that yes. until the uh, well is dug... But we need to recalibrate risk, don't we? So... There was risk of importing LNG, but equally there's a risk also of fracking energy from underneath large parts of the Midlands and, and in the south. But that's a risk too. But then, of course, if we don't do that, we then have families paying a lot of money for their, their heating and keeping their homes warm. So, the, 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 All life is about balancing risk, isn't it? Mm. That's just the nature of humanity. Mm. So, yes, of course. And which risks do you think are important? And there are risks in terms of the effect on areas so you know if you're living next to uh, a fracking site actually fracking sites are pretty small but nonetheless people worry about that people worry about all development about the size of parliament square i was told yeah it's, it's, to, to it's about a cricket pitch actually yeah yeah it's of course it's all happening a mile or two beneath the surface so very little is seen on the surface 
there's quite a bit of construction because you have to put in the pipes to connect yeah. it to the gas main. So there are issues. It's not all done and dusted. It would take time to get any gas supply from it. But it's right that the government is looking at it again. Is it right to pause the net zero target while we get this uh, sorted out? 2050 is some time off. Yes, I should be getting on a bit in 2050. <laughs> How many of the cabinet agree with you on fracking? Liz Truss apparently overnight is a supporter. Well, I think Cabinet always speaks with one voice, and it's based on the um, manifesto we stood for election this, on. This is you, me, in a pub talking about Jacob. <laughs> There's no one listening to this. Do you know? Is it half I'm, the Cabinet? I was, I was speaking last night to a group, and they said we were speaking under Chatham House rules. And I must confess, I do sometimes wish that the Cabinet obeyed Chatham House rules, yes. because it does seem that everything that's said in Cabinet gets leaked, which is unfortunate. I'm not one of those people who leaks what is said in the Cabinet. I'm going to call you up. It's actually the Chatham House rule, by the way. There's only one rule. Oh, there's only one rule, Just, I, I know you... Thank you, you very much. No, well, that. I'm very pleased to know that. Forgive me. Defence, 2% of GDP on defence isn't enough. Should it double? Long drink of your coffee there. Yes, my coffee's getting a bit cold. I'm not drinking it fast enough. Defence is something that the UK has been more serious about than many other countries. We have been at the NATO target consistently. We have upgraded our aircraft carrier fleet. We have spent enormous amounts on equipment. The procurement pipeline for the coming years is equally very substantial. We have a huge commitment as it is, but defence always has to respond to the risks that are there, and if the risks are greater, then the money will have to follow. But let's see what happens. I, I mean, Look, I'm not a military expert, so I'm really regurgitating back to you what I have read in the Daily Telegraph from your military experts. But it does seem as if things have not gone as well for Putin as he had hoped in Ukraine, and that his armed forces are not as competent and as well organised and as well logistically supplied as we might have thought the Russian army was going to be. And therefore, if he gets bogged down in Ukraine, we must be proportionate and we must be sensible in terms of what the real threat is, we want to be prepared for the next set of threats rather than fighting the last set of threats. Now, if you were to say, should we have done things differently with Russia since 2014? The answer is obviously yes. But that doesn't mean that we should determine the next 10 years of policy or the next eight years of policy on the basis of what has just happened. It's a factor, but it's not the only factor. I mean, we do know the government's talking about strengthening the line around NATO countries which involves spending more money, but there's no number in your head of what it should be. No, there isn't. But also, I don't think the indication of the government's virility is a headline spending number. No. I think the success of the government is whether this money is well spent, well spent and achieved things. Yep. It is a socialist idea, so I'm not surprised that you're putting yes. it forward, yes. to stand up and say, we have spent £5 billion on this, and isn't it marvellous? tank production or whatever it might be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's not right at all. It yeah. is, yeah. And here's why... And this is why it's making people's lives better or safer or contributing. You to mentioned food security earlier. That's a big concern now, isn't it? Do you think we should stop planting trees and plant more crops? Well, I think we should essentially move to a more market system. I think we should allow farmers to compete in the global marketplace and we should help them to do that. And then they will decide whether to plant trees or to plant crops. But the policy is to rewild parts of the country, which some parts you could plant crops in, possibly? Well, when countries have a large population and a poor they use marginal land which is low productivity modern farming methods and the ability to get greater productivity mean that you don't need to use 
marginal land so much. And said it's essentially an economic case. Yes. I mean, I'm not a great believer in the idea that the government can work out how much land we should use and for what. No, I'm a believer that we should see that there is a market price for wheat. And if farmers want to grow wheat, well, that should be a decision for farmers. I think once governments start intervening, you make markets less efficient. And actually, you probably reduce f- food security by too much interference. Politics, of course, continues here. Now, how certain are you that Boris Johnson will fight the next election? Well, Deo Valenti, I'm sure that the Prime Minister will fight the next election. I would certainly be supporting him too. If he gets a fixed penalty notice for partying during lockdowns, should he resign? Well, what's that all about? Partygate. What's that? You think it was, that was an indulgence by the Westminster village that we, is now being forgotten because of war's on? Look, we've got to be serious. We've got to think about a global crisis. We have got to be thinking about a cost of living crisis. We've got to be thinking about what's happening both in this country and in the world. And we cannot be uh, distracted by things that may or may not have happened a couple of years ago for a few minutes. This is not serious politics. It never was. Has the country it moved always, on? It was always disproportionate. Has the country moved on? That, your readers will write into your paper saying what their views are. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, you get a lot of discussion now that quite a bit of the woke stuff is going to. Because we're being serious again. Mm. And we are stopping nasal gaving. Mm. Naval-gazing, whatever it is, it's no unpleasant activity. There is this big increase in national insurance coming. That's baked in, that can't be changed. You must ask the Chancellor. Taxation is a matter of the Chancellor. Regulation, on the other hand, well, look, we need supply-side reforms. Hmm. How, how do you make the economy more efficient? You get the supply-side reforms that take the burdens off industry. And that's what we must be doing, and we must be doing it with Brio. Yeah. I can't ask you quickly before you go, and thank you for your time. There's Ooh, been a big pleasure. debate about what is a woman, because uh, Annelise Dodds couldn't answer the question on Woman's Hour yesterday. She said that it depends what the context is. Well, I can answer the question for you. What's a woman, Jacob? A Richard woman Mark? is Genesis one twenty-seven. So God created man is an alien image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. That seems to me to be a pretty good definition of a man and a woman the creation of god and just finally jacob Smog, we're reporting today that the new national flagship is going to be unveiled oh i saw that yes you've been campaigning for that for years well, not me personally the telegraph and i've been helping you lead personally it. you <laughs> have been the leading figure will you be on board i think it should be called the christopher hope in honour of all that you have done to make it happen and i hope that your membership of the royal victorian order is in the bag I think a plaque in the gents saying Chopper was here <laughs> is all I want. Jacob Rees-Mogg, it's great to have you on My pleasure. Chopper's Politics. Appreciate it. Busy time. Thank you for coming on. Thank you. Thank you. Right. Do stay with us, listeners. Coming up, I'll be talking to comedian Andy Zaltzman about how to find humour and whether that's even possible during a time of war. Right after this. If you're finding this podcast interesting, you may also like our new daily podcast, Ukraine, the latest. Every weekday, The Telegraph's leading journalists bring you the latest news and the most informed analysis of President Putin's invasion of Ukraine. From our newsroom in London and from the ground. The Russian machine has been ground to a halt now for well over a week, and that is just staggering. NATO has to act now. It has to do more than it's currently doing. Otherwise, in this Ukrainian MP's words, you'll have to evacuate the whole continent. One video that we found to be incorrect was bomb squads seen in the Donbass region. The metadata of this clip shows that it was created in 2019, not today. 
Search Ukraine, the latest, in the same place you're listening to this, and click follow so you don't miss an update. Now, in dark times like these, it can understandably be a struggle to find humour, even if we might need it sometimes. But satirical comedian Andy Zaltzman has the unenviable job of having to do just that, as he hosts the topical comedy radio show The News Quiz on Radio 4. Andy Zaltzman, welcome to Jobber's Politics. Thanks, thanks for having me. How on earth do you do topical comedy at a time of war in Europe? Uh, It was... Well, tricky. I, I hope we managed to strike the right tone. Yeah, just, I mean, within the con- within the context of, of comedy, and certainly in my career, I think it's about the most difficult thing that I've I've done, trying to, yeah. you know, obviously in the grand scheme of things, it's not a great burden, but it was, a, you know, in terms of trying to make the show as good as possible, make it, you know, a bit satirically relevant, but also in, in good taste. It was a, it was a challenge, and um, ho- hopefully we managed to make it both funny and and tasteful, but, yeah, it was uh, it was tricky. Yeah. Without getting too chin-stroking about it, do you think comedy has never been more important than now, or is it a luxury we can't afford? Um, well, as is generally the case, it's probably somewhere between the <laughs> two. Um, I mean, I think there's yes. there's an element of catharsis about, about comedy. Um, and clearly, a, a radio show in the UK is probably not going to bring Putin crashing to his knees. But but at the same time, I think, you know, from the feedback I've had, people appreciate having you know, a, a different perspective on what is otherwise very bleak news. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it, it has a, a function in times such as such as these, certainly. Yes, you'll, you'll enjoy Normally we record this podcast in the Red Lion pub and we can't uh, today, so we're doing it down the line. But I was talking to the landlord of the, of the Red Lion and they, they have a problem with had a, a huge crane was going to come in and shut down their pub for a bit so I said there's a big issue you know with Ukraine's a great worry and they said yes the crane is a great worry and we had a laugh and I thought that's a true story from the Red Lion yeah. pub there and I think I, I thought should I even tell that joke but it was funny at the time yes and you can well I mean you know, a, I mean throughout human history there has been comedy during during wars um of various types so you know there is a, a place for it and I you know I guess if 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 you don't feel like listening to it, you don't. You don't have to um, in, right. a, in a time such as this. But I, I think a lot of people do do like to have some kind of uh, outlet. Yeah, I think people are ready for Putin jokes, aren't they? Uh, yes. Uh, I mean, in terms of the satire, there's not a lot of light and shade with Putin. I mean, in terms of you know something BBC balance on the news, because <laughs> I don't feel like I have to put the pro-Putin jokes no. uh, as well as. The, I've been uh, wearing a Dynamo Kiev scarf for a week. I mean, I've, I've <laughs> fed aside all neutrality as a reporter at the Telegraph. Another comedian whose surname starts with a Z, of course, your Zoltzman, has rather raised the bar since we last spoke, hasn't he? This Zelensky character. Yes, yes. Uh, he's also um, from a Jewish background, as I am. He's in his 40s, yes. as I am, and he's yes. m- making me feel extremely inadequate. Uh, obviously, at the moment, he's not really going for the big laughs, but I mean, it's, a, it's an extraordinary story, his, his personal tale. And, um, yes. uh, and I guess, you know, there's an element in which you know, a background in, in performance certainly can be of considerable use at a, at a time like this and sort of conveying the right messages and the right persona to, to his people. That's right. I was, I was in, in the House of Commons on, on Tuesday this week when he spoke. I mean, most of the press gallery didn't have any translation, so we had to go on just uh, working out if what you're saying was moving or not moving, but the whole thing was moving. It was, it was quite yeah. an extraordinary time, I think, and yes. um, bringing in... 
Churchill or Shakespeare, it, it didn't make us almost look back on ourselves as a country and wonder why we've been worrying about Partygate for so long, possibly. <laughs> yes, I mean, everything has its place, uh, I guess. I'm slightly disappointed they didn't chuck in a few Tim Vine-style puns as well, but maybe yes. his, next, his next gig in the House of Maybe lost in translation, that. Andy, you never, never know that. <laughs> Politicians are, by their nature, um, absurd, away from the Zelensky and more, more into the UK context. I mean, they are almost the perfect comedy targets. I'm more struck how you can't actually use, can you, clips of Parliament? You're not allowed to buy law, are you, to make, to make fun out of the Parliament? No, um, and um, I think that would be a ripe source of humour, certainly some of you chopping up parliamentary speeches or yes. trying to, sort of, I guess, highlight inconsistencies. I mean, I guess you can always do it just by... You know, sort of reporting what's been said, but yeah, it um, it would be, it would be quite nice to be able to use the odd little bit of uh, little bit of footage. And you're currently on tour, Andy Zaltzman, with your satirist for hire. That hasn't been called off by the war, has it? Uh, it has not thus far, and hopefully it will remain uh, that way. Yes, I'm about halfway through the. Uh, the, the first phase of it, I've got an eight-night run in London in May as well, and I've, I've got about another sort of 10, 10, 12 dates uh, in March dotted around the country. Has it changed over the past two weeks? Because, of course, you started it before the war started. Uh, yes. Well, it was um, – well, I started around about the exact the exact time that it began, a couple, oh. a couple of weeks ago. So, um, I mean, live comedy, I think, is, is very different to, to radio comedy. It's uh, a bit looser. People are, I think, uh, probably – more prepared to delve into more difficult mm. topics in a way. But, yeah, I mean, it's... Uh, uh, and the nature of the show, because I take requests from the audience both in advance and on the night, I can sort of balance out the heavier news yes. stories with kind of nonsense. I, I mean, uh, Lincoln today, and someone has asked me to satirise mushrooms. Um, so, um, <laughs> but it's not all the, the big political stories. Uh, so, so it's quite a fun show to do, and, and uh, you know, it's very much up to the audience what, what the content is. I haven't noticed you being cancelled yet, so you're doing something <laughs> well, right or wrong. I'm not sure which works for a career in comedy nowadays. Uh, yes, well, I think, I mean, uh, I'm probably not, not high-profile and well-known enough to be cancelled yet, so I'm sure all in good time, all in good time. I think all, all comedy has a place, don't you think? I wonder whether Twitter's, when Twitter's reaction to the Jimmy Carr remarks about the Holocaust, clearly in the cold light of day, an appalling thing to say, but I was listening to... Um, we, we spoke at the Telegraph, I think, to people who'd been to comedy shows, and they kind of know what's coming, so they were more understanding of the jokes, I think. So perhaps it's all about context. It is about context. I think it's a bit different when something is said in a live show, when it goes out on television or Netflix, and it's there sort of in perpetuity. It, it, it can be taken out of, out of context. And, you know, I think, you know, you have to understand that as a comedian when you're doing stuff on radio or tv or podcast things are there mm. then uh, to be judged in the future and you have to you know i guess make your decision on whether you want to put out material in you know and in what form you want to want yeah. to put it out and accept that that you know some people may not like it and be prepared to, to stand by it and i've not i've not seen the whole of that jimmy carr routine but you know i mean that is one of the the dangers i guess and difficulties of, of comedy now that things taken out of context can look pretty bad and you know what what he said i guess it the context would have to be pretty extraordinary for it not to look bad but you know if, if you're you're trading on um being, you know, being offensive well or... the boundaries of offense then you may fall the wrong side of it sometimes that's right i noticed your show's been to barnard castle in in the past couple of weeks how was that uh it, it was it was good i think i got the feeling they've probably had enough dominic cummings jokes um now <laughs> there's never enough dominic cummings jokes surely. <laughs> um so uh, but I, I did i did drive there uh, as well but I, I drove there blindfolded and i got there <laughs> fine so you know i don't i don't think he proved anything to be honest <laughs> Were they were they welcoming of the attention from Andy Zoltz and from the BBC Radio uh, News Quiz? 
<laughs> what could they do without you being there? And just let them uh, get on well, with their life. They, they seem to in, they seem to enjoy. It. I mean, there wasn't we didn't talk about uh, about yeah. Mr. Cummings too much. Too so, much, um, no, not, yeah. not more than half the show. <laughs> and more importantly, how are you judging the progress of the England cricket team? Of course, we're talking, aren't we, midweek during the test in the West Indies, so um, I'm not sure where yes. it sits. You're not scoring, are you, just out of habit? You're, 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 <laughs> you're fully, you've got some time off. <laughs> I've got some time off the, the cricket. I the, should uh, say you're the, you're the scorer for Radio Four's Test Match Special normally. Yes, but the BBC aren't uh, covering this talk sport, uh, uh, covering this no. test. So, yeah, I'm following it like a, like a fan again, and um, England made the characteristic appalling start and have, uh, as we record recovered uh, pretty well so um yeah it's quite nice to, to follow a test match without constantly looking up all the numbers and I, I must tell you that last um, year in in Cornwall I managed to play cricket with Matt Hancock who emerged from the surf on the beach um and I, I should have had you scoring but it was um he was a, he's a good bowler I've got oh, to really? say yeah. uh, he got got me out for a hat trick embarrassingly really you know I, I gave him a chance yeah he had a tough time lost his job in government <laughs> that's very kind of you Oh, he's a, he's a, I mean, I know he's a, he's a big, big cricket fan, but um, I'm not sure that entirely justifies everything else. He's but, re- um, reinventing himself and his ultimate. <laughs> but cricket, cricket can bring us together. That's the, the joy of it. And that's all we need nowadays. Listen, um, we're going to put the link to how listeners can buy tickets for your brilliant show as it goes on around the country. And you've got a big residency in, in, in London coming up soon. But thank you for joining us uh, this week on Chopper's Politics. Andy Zoltman, thank you, sir. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, that's your lot, listeners. For more on the energy crisis that we discussed earlier with Jacob Rees-Mogg, the ongoing war in Ukraine, or even how to define what a woman is, please go to telegraph.co.uk, our website, to keep up to date and for top analysis from our journalists and writers. If you're not a subscriber already, and if not, why not? Please go to telegraph.co.uk forward slash chopper to get your first month's access to our journalism completely free of charge. And as always, if you have anything to say about what you've heard from either of my guests, you can email me, chopperspolitics at telegraph.co.uk, or tweet me, I'm at chopperspodcast. For more about what's happening in Westminster, please sign up to my daily Chopper's Politics newsletter, which goes into your email inbox every weekday. The link to sign up to that is in the show notes to this episode. And if that's not enough chopper for you, please do check out my weekly Peterborough Diary column on the Telegraph website at 7pm on Fridays and in Saturday's newspaper. Once again, thank you to my guests, Jacob Rees-Mogg, MP, and Andy Zaltzman. Thank you to my producers, Louisa Wells and Theodora Luludis. But most importantly of all, thank you to you for listening. And if you can, please do buy a copy of the Daily Telegraph. You won't regret it. Until next time, though, cheerio!